It is March the 27th. So glad that you all braved the cold and the roads this morning. It looks a little better now. I know when I drove in, my, even my gray car was uh, sliding just a bit on the road. But I didn't go over the edge of, this, of the, uh, whatchamacallit, the parking lot. So I guess we're good. Thank you. Our scripture for today uh, comes from Luke 20, 27 through 40. And I almost read my children's story there instead. There we go. In the story of Luke, after, he tri after Jesus triumphantly walks into Jerusalem, he goes and he spends about a week or so preaching and teaching in the temple courts themselves. And that's where this story happens, in the temple courts. Now, this is from 2027 20, through 40. Now, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for thus that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, that man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third, uh, married her. And in the same way, each of the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since she married, since the seven were all married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Since they, are no, since they can no longer die, for they are like angels. They are God's children. And since they are children of the, rec since they are children of the resurrection... That in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all to him are all, for, yeah, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Amen. I don't think we have any kids today, right? I'm looking up at our, our person who should be in the, in the uh, nursery if we had kids, and she's not. So normally I would just skip the children's story, but today I can't. Because I need to tell you all a story that goes right into the sermon. So I'm going to go ahead and tell the story, but because the way the sermon is written, um, I'm going to do it now so we have the break to sing the choir, and then we'll jump into the sermon proper. This was initially for the kids, but you all need to hear this because it's an important story. Now, there's an idiom, an, an old saying that, come, that comes from Asia, though you've probably heard it yourself. You, someone who... Uh, doesn't understand their own strength or doesn't know how, if 
you know, doesn't understand that they don't know things, that despite the fact they think they do know everything, you might call them a frog in the well. And it comes from a story that goes along like this. This is the a version of the story as it comes from Taiwan. Once upon a time, there was a frog, a little frog who lived in the bottom of a well. Now, he had always been there. He had hatched from an egg in the bottom of the well. He had been a tadpole in the well. He, he became a full adult frog in the well. And it was a nice place to live. It was cool and damp. He got some sun during the day, but for the most part, he could relax in the shade, sit on his mossy rock and eat the bugs and take a swim when he wanted. During the day, he would look up and watch the clouds pass. And at night, he'd watch the stars and sometimes the moon. Every once in a while, a bird would fly and perch itself at the top of the well. And the frog would say, come. Come down here, come down into my well and live with me. It is a wonderful place. It is cool and damp. It is full of tasty bugs, and we can watch the stars and the moon and the clouds together. It is the best place to live in the world. There is nowhere better. The birds, of course, would argue, no, no, it's not. There's lots to see out here. Why don't you come out here, little frog? No, 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 said the frog. This is the best place. I wish not to go anywhere else. Finally, one day, old sparrow flew by. Again, frog asked him to come join, and how wonderful it was in the well. Frog, old sparrow, of course, ignored that and said, no, little frog, you should come out. But Old Sparrow had had enough of this conversation, as it happened more than once with him. And so he flew down, and he grasped Little Frog and flew him out of the well and took him up into the sky. Little Frog looked around. He couldn't believe at the vastness of this world. What are those large green things over there, and what are those little green things over there? Well, those are mountains, said Sparrow. And they are away off in the distance. The, the little ones are even farther away, but they are even taller than the ones that are close. Well, what is those green things over there? And what is that silver ribbon? Oh, those are trees, giant plants that reach up into the sky. And that is a river that flows, that is flowing water from the mountains down to the sea. Is that the sea over there? That blue that extends on to beyond what I can see? Yes. And it goes even further than that. And what is that yellow thing that's so bright it hurts my eyes? That is the sun. It gives us warmth and light. It gives us life. Old Sparrow flew down and landed, among, and landed in the grass and let go of Little Frog. Do you want to go back? No, I think I want to explore some more. Little Frog hopped along of the bases of trees, seeing mushrooms and plants and flowers for the first time. And then, and then he came to a pond. It was the biggest piece of water he had ever been so close to. 
far larger than his little well. And he jumped in and he swam. And then finding a lily pad, he hopped on it and he looked up at the sky, at the vastness of the sky, the clouds and the sun. He watched as the sun dipped below and he watched the stars and the moon rise. And at last he understood that maybe that little well wasn't the most perfect place ever. Now I realize that while many of us here uh, grew up Church of the Brethren, not everyone has. And so you'll have to permit me a moment where I, I'm, I'm going to go into some tradition within our, well, tradition. Um, some of you I know grew up in churches that were creedal. Now a creed is a system of beliefs by which a person defines their faith. Often it's organized into a, a statement, uh, which is then repeated in worship. The most famous of these are, of course, the Apostles' Creed, which came around the mid-400s, give or take. We don't really know for sure. And the other one being the Nicene Creed, which was initially written in the year 325 and then revised in 381. Now, the Nicene Creed's purpose was to bring all of the Christians in the Roman Empire, because this is when Christianity became the religion of the empire, to bring them all into one accord, not the car, but an actual you know, agreement, so that there would no longer be all of these arguments and these fights about what is heretical and what is doctrine. Now, the early brethren rejected creeds, and we still technically do. Uh, I like how Frank Ramirez put it. He is a, a brethren historian, a funny writer, as all get out, and a pastor. But he, he said as it comes from two main points. First off, that the Nicene Creed was meant to bring people under the banner of one church and one state. And as a tradition that believes that there needs to be separation between the legal state and the church itself. We don't really agree to that idea. That makes sense, right? The other being is that people tend to point then to creed saying, this is what we believe. If you have any questions, read the creed. But if you are to read the creed, what you'll notice is it tells you, you know, this is who God the Father is, and here's Jesus, and Jesus was born of a virgin, and he, he walked away, but then he was arrested, tried, um, tried, I, I executed, and then rose from the dead. Doesn't really tell you a lot about all the things that happened between birth and, and Jerusalem, right? We're kind of skipping over, I don't know, 85% of the Gospels. So... That kind of goes against what we, we, we were founded as a tradition that wanted to study the Bible together. And so it made no sense that we would have a creed because for us, the creed is the New Testament to sit down together and read and work at it as a group. So that's why we don't do creeds and that's what creed is. So now we have those definitions. I can tell you about the philil, ay, ay, ay. Of course, I can say it in practice until I have to say it out loud. 
the phililoquy, which some of you are like, what's that? Why does that even matter? Here's what it is. In the Nicene Creed, there are three sections in which it explains who the Father, who the Son, and who the Holy Spirit are. And the Holy Spirit, as it was written in 385 and trans, or 381 and translated into English, goes, and in the Holy Spirit, where we believe, I believe, in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the creator of life, who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. Now, I know I have at least one person here who grew up Catholic, and anyone else who maybe grew up Baptist or Presbyterian or Lutheran might recognize that this did not sound right. And that's because the Roman Catholic Church, and through them Western Protestantism, added a phrase. In Latin, it's phililoquy, which translates to the four words, and from the Son. So theirs reads, and in the Holy Spirit, the, creator, the Lord, the creator of life, who proceeds from the Father and from the Son, so on and so forth. That one word, that one word in Latin is often pointed to as the whole reason why there is a Roman Catholic Church and an Eastern Orthodox Church. That one word. It's a little reductionist. There's a lot of other stuff going on too. It's not really just that. But when the Roman Catholic Church added that onto it, the Eastern Orthodox folks say, hey, that's not allowed. You can't add to it. And in 1054, they split over that one word in essence. 968 years later, that is still a major sticking point between the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox traditions. Honestly, it was just one more problem that had been brewing for years and years in the early church. Everyone was trying to define what the tenets of faith are. And we could spend hours and hours on all the different beliefs that were considered at one time doctrine or heretical or just unimportant and how they continue to live in our world because none of them really go away. We just adapt them. And I think they're honestly quite interesting, but they don't make much of a good sermon. I think it's just fine fun to study. But people have spent lifetimes and purposely shortened others' lifetimes with violent ends over these small issues of doctrine. We, brethren, aren't immune to it. After all, we have had schisms in our church because we couldn't agree whether we could have stained glass windows, organs, pianos, or Sunday school. So no, we are not immune to it. Why do we do this? Why do we get caught up in these seemingly simple and quite frankly, my daughter's not here, I can say this, stupid arguments. I've trained her well enough, now she tells me, we don't say stupid, daddy. I can call this stupid, because it is, at least it seems like that. Okay, I can call it that, but let's also be honest with ourselves. It's easy to look back at the past and go, that was stupid without understanding the kind of life and world and belief systems they had. Because things change over time. Back then, these questions were all consuming. And people really worried if they did not have the correct answers, 
that they would not be given access to paradise after death. They would not be resurrected if they believed the wrong thing. I mean, there is a huge argument as to whether Jesus was half God, half human, all human, all God, or both all God and all human. I mean, people were literally put to death over that question because they were so worried that if, not only if they believed wrong, but they didn't know the right answer, that they would die and go to hell for it. Part of it is just we humans like to have answers. But you know what another part of it is? It always comes down to who is the dominant authority in faith. I mean, the argument really, when it comes to, you know, is the Holy Spirit from the Father alone or from the Father and the Son is really an argument as to whether the, the bishops of of Constantinople and Antioch and Jerusalem and all those places, whether they all share authority or whether the, the Bishop of Rome is the only one who has authority in him. The same kind of arguing happened in Jesus' day too. It's nothing new. Every faith has these arguments over the minutia points. For instance... The two dominant sects of Judaism had a problem with resurrection. Now the Sadducees, and I don't spend a lot of time talking about their belief systems because Jesus was more like the Pharisees, so we talk about them. But the Sadducees, um, who bring up today's problem, believe that there is only free will and no fate. They believe that there are no angels or spirits, only God. They believe that we only live one life, and when we die, we enter into Sheol, or Sheol. It's S-H-E-O-L. And if you see it translated in Bibles, anytime you see the word Hades, it's Sheol they're translating. And it's not a bad place. It's not a good place. It's just a state where you're just there. I've heard it described as like going to an outdoor concert at night, and that moment when they've shut down the lights to kind of bring your attention onto the stage and you, everyone gets really quiet and they're waiting, except that's where you're stuck forever. Which honestly kind of sounds terrible to me, but anyway. That's what they believe happens to everyone after they die, whether you lived a good life or in a bad life. What you were trying to do in your life as a good God-fearing Jew was to live a life that will be remembered positively. So that when you died, people will remember you after you died and they will honor your name and your, and your children will be honored and they will honor you as well. I know that sounds weird, but to be honest, this was a common Jewish belief right up until the exile. They didn't think they were going to heaven or hell. They didn't believe in a heaven or hell. That was something that came a little later. And if you look at the Hebrew scriptures, you'll notice that when they talk about heaven, it's not a place you go when you die. It's just where God lives. Heaven's is God's palace. It isn't until later where people like the Pharisees start believing, you know what? 
It doesn't make any sense that God would send everybody to the same place. Surely for those who live good lives, there is some kind of good afterlife. And that's the Pharisees are the first ones to start believing in that, along with the idea that there's a resurrection. Resurrection also is one of those things where biblically, as far as the Hebrew Bible goes, you can argue it either way. Resurrection only happens when someone is immediately brought back from the dead, like the widow's son, who, you know, he dies, Elijah goes in and goes, you're alive? I cannot snap with that sweater in the way. There we go. Or in the one time that someone's been dead for a while, um, he accidentally touches Elisha's bones, who are already in the earth, and he's brought back to life immediately. That's what they think resurrection is. Someone who is miraculously brought back to life in only very special circumstances. Any other time there's resurrection, the Sadducees would look at it and say, the resurrection they're talking about is not the resurrection of a body or a soul, but rather it's a resurrection of a people. You know, I'm going to bring my people back. It's not you're literally going to have, you know, people coming out of their graves, but rather the Jewish people will be given back what was once theirs, and as a people they will rise again. Though the Pharisees argued it's actually the dead rising. Now, as I said, the Pharisees believed in an afterlife, a one that was punished or was a punishment or a reward according to what you did in this life. And Jesus is much more Pharisee than he is Sadducee. And so when he's in the temple preaching, the Sadducees, knowing that Jesus is closely related to the Pharisees, they probably thought he was a Pharisee. They went up and decided to try and trip him up with theological, logical argument. They say, hey, Jesus, you're a follower of the law. We've got a problem for you to figure out. If a man marries a woman who then, and then he dies before he's able to give her a child, and they follow the law, and she marries his brother with the idea that she'll have a child by him, but he dies, and this process is repeated, until finally she dies after marrying all seven brothers. What happens in the resurrection then? What happens, Jesus? Come on, explain this to us. Now this sounds like a logic problem. I mean, it was kind of meant to show Jesus how illogical it was as a good, God-fearing, law-following man that the idea of resurrection was. The Pharisee, I mean, the Sadducees looked around their world and their culture and they reflected on it and reflected that on the God. For surely the way that this world works is also the way that God works. God likes to order things. God likes rules and laws. After all, God gave them the law. God gave them order. God gave this world in order. And how would God, a God of law and order, allow for resurrection when it would make all that law and order just fall apart with confusion and mess and chaos. God cannot be a chaotic God. Don't judge them too harshly. Yeah, the Sadducees are overall fairly terrible people in all four Gospels. Don't get me wrong on that. But their beliefs aren't coming about out of nowhere, and they aren't dishonest beliefs when it comes to this. 
After all, we all project our worldview onto God. We make claims that, that God is a Democrat or a Republican, that he's democratic or authoritarian, that he supports socialism or capitalism or is progressive, liberal, libertarian or conservative. I remember going to COSI as a kid and there was this, this one thing where you could, you could sit with this piece of glass between you and another person and this glass was just reflective enough that you saw your own image but you could see the person on the other side. So you could line your faces up together and you would get an idea of if you had a child with this person, what it would look like, which was awkward at the time because I was there with my brothers. But anyway. <laughs> Choir thought that was pretty good. But in that, we, we that's how we view God. We cast our reflection in front of God and that's, Oh, this is what God would be like if God was like me. One of my favorite thoughts when thinking about faith and how we think of God actually comes out of World War I and II. The Germans all wore belts that, wrote, that read, Gott mit uns, which means God's with us. They fought the Americans who had money in their pockets that read, In God we trust. And they were fighting the British who claimed to see angels coming down onto the battlefield and fighting on their own behalf. We are all the frogs sitting in the bottom of our own wells, looking up at the sky and seeing just a bit of God and claiming that we understand God perfectly. We are like that and the Sadducees were like that as well. They saw a world of order, of law, of everything in its place. And they said, surely that is what God is like. So Jesus encounters these frog people, and he answers in two different ways. First, he disarms their logic. The people of this age are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. In short, the resurrection of the body will create uh, will be create a new life, begin a new life that is not the same as this one here. That the kingdom to come is not a reflection of the kingdom that is now, but rather the kingdom of now is a pale reflection of that which is already there. Or rather the kingdom to come. Paul will later discuss the same thing, and I love the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. He likens the life that we have now and the body we have now to a seed that is put in the ground and allowed to grow. The resurrection, the new body that is given, is like the plant that grows from the seed. You cannot tell what a plant will look like if you only look at the seed. It will turn into something completely different. So it will be in the new life, in the new kingdom. Our lives, our bodies, the ways of this world will look completely different. 
And then he goes on to argue with logic. He goes, but in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for, uh, for to him all are alive. Now, the first argument certainly makes sense. And I think of, you know, I've been using the story of the frog in the well, that we can only see our limited lives. We can only see the limited bit of God. But this argument is very different. Jesus is engaging in the same kind of logical argument that the Sadducees are. Jesus is jumping into the well. Jesus is like the old sparrow who comes down. Now, unlike the little frog, we will never be able in this life to be carried out of the well. We are limited to understanding God because of who we are. Just bodies of flesh and bone. Minds that are limited by the size of our brain capacity. Even if we ever get around to using all of it. But Jesus is willing to come down. In many ways, that, that is the story. The frog in the well is the story of Jesus. God willing to come down into the well and show us that the sky is far more vast than that simple little circle that we can see at the top. Being willing to drag us out of the comfort of what we think is the most perfect place and show us that there is perfectionist Perfection and vastness beyond anything we could possibly imagine. Jesus jumps down in the well with us. Because God knows we can't pull ourselves out. We humans are going to continue arguing about dumb stuff. I'm also not allowed to say dumb. But we do it. We do it all the time. I think that's pretty much what 24-hour news channels that they exist, because we have plenty of dumb going around. But we also have a chance, a chance to look up and see the sky. And we have been given the knowledge to know that that little bit of circle that we can see is not the limits of the sky that the vastness of the cosmos is unimaginable to us. And so we wait and try our best and grasp on to the old sparrow when he comes down for us. We might be frogs in the well, but we don't have to be limited by it. So, um, I, I often write the title of a sermon on Tuesday when I set up the web, when I set up the video. So you'll notice I never said what about. Because originally I thought I was going to talk about what aboutism. This idea that whenever somebody does something wrong that we disagree about, we point to someone else who did just as bad and say, well, what about them? It's not an excuse. It's never an excuse for people who are doing something bad now. But it's also, 
I think can be applied in this as well. What about I just stay here where it's easy, where I don't have to tackle the hard questions, where I don't have to be willing to be uncertain? One, one of the hardest arguments that has happened in Christianity over the last 2,000 years is how does this whole Father, Son, and Holy Ghost thing work? And we just celebrated St. Patrick's Day, who, of course, famously picked up a, a three-leaf clover and say, it's like this, which is technically heresy, because the three-leaf clover, the way it works, is not how it's supposed to work. The only correct answer, quote-unquote correct answer, is to say that we don't understand how the Trinity works, that it is a mystery, can't imagine why we don't like to say that, right? But so much of who God is is a mystery because we are limited. Because we get one book. And as wonderful as this single book is, we are limited by it. Because we humans are limited. It is just an opening at the top of the well. It is a window into the vastness of what is beyond, a window into the vastness of who God is. It's okay to not know. It's okay for it to be a mystery. So as you look up and out the window at the top of the well, as you walk out of this place, and you look up and you realize that you are seeing into something beyond what you can even be okay with, just try to be okay with it. Because ultimately, we do know one certain thing about God. God loves each and every one of us, and we are the beloved children. Every single one of us here and beyond. Amen.